This is Guns and Butter. The chemicals used in fluoridation are not pharmaceutical grade, not the same grade that we use in toothpaste, etc. These chemicals are industrial waste products derived from the air pollution control systems of the phosphate fertilizer industry. They use a spray of water to capture two very toxic gases which damage the environment near phosphate plants for many years. This spray of water captures hydrogen fluoride and silicon tetrafluoride and makes a substance called hexafluorosilicic acid. Cut a long story short, they can't dump this stuff into the sea by international law. They can't dump it locally because it's too concentrated, but if someone buys it from them, it then becomes a product, and then we put it in our drinking water supply. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Paul Connett. Today's show, water fluoridation. In 2006, Paul Connett retired from a full professorship at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York, where his specialty was environmental chemistry and toxicology. He is currently the director of the Fluoride Action Network. He is co-author of The Case Against Fluoride, How Hazardous Waste Ended Up in Our Drinking Water and the Bad Science and Powerful Politics That Keep It There. On March 25, 2013, Paul Connett gave a speech in Santa Rosa, California, entitled Why We Need to Keep Fluoridation Out of Sonoma County. In this speech, he delineates 12 arguments against the fluoridation of drinking water and provides evidence of its harmful effects on the tissues of the human body. Dr. Paul Connett. Anyway, thank you everybody for, for coming. And let's get straight into it. Introduction. I've spent 17 years researching this issue, first as a professor of chemistry, I specialized in environmental chemistry and toxicology. I did not want the issue. My wife persuaded me to get involved. I didn't want it because I was engaged full-time uh, teaching chemistry and all my weekends and holidays were mortgaged to helping communities around the world on waste management. That issue has taken me to 49 states in the United States, seven provinces in Canada, and by the end of next month, uh, to 60 different countries. So I didn't want a second issue, and I certainly didn't want a second issue which would stigmatize me as loony tubes, which is how people opposed to fluoridation have been portrayed for many years. However, I, I did start to read the literature that my wife gave me, and I was absolutely shocked and embarrassed that I'd been uh, conned into thinking the opponents of fluoridation were crazy. Anyway, this work culminated in the publication of this book, which I wrote with two other scientists, James Beck, an MD, PhD from Calgary in Alberta, and Spenny Micklum, a biologist trained at Oxford and taught at Edinburgh University. So we had a chemist, a physicist, and a biologist. We were all retired. We all had plenty of time to read the literature. It's understated, not overstated. It can be read by the ordinary citizen, but for those who have scientific qualifications, every single argument is documented in the scientific literature. There's 80 pages of references. And that's a, a little bit like tonight's presentation. Hopefully most of it is what I'm gonna say is understandable. It's not 
submerged in jargon, you can understand it, but there are going to be places where you might make, make a little note, go to the book or go to the website to get more information. So, I'm going to start with 12 arguments against fluoridation. Then, uh, present the evidence of harm and argue that there's no adequate margin of safety to known health effects. Present the evidence of, that any benefit from swallowing fluoride is extremely weak. Ask, answer the question, why do health agencies continue to push fluoridation? But you realize that that's difficult because you try to find a rational explanation for irrational behavior. Um, better alternatives to fight tooth decay. It's not enough to say no to something. It's much better if you can say yes to something else. And finally, uh, some tips on how we might stop it in Sonoma County. Now, affecting change is like driving a nail through a piece of wood. The expert can sharpen the nail, but that expert can't push the nail through the piece of wood with their bare hands. You can't do it. So I cannot talk to anybody in this county and stop you getting fluoridation. But hopefully, if I sharpen a few nails tonight, you will be able to stop it coming into Sonoma County because we need the hammer, the hammer of public opinion to drive the nail home. Now that doesn't work unless you leave this auditorium tonight feeling that you understand these arguments well enough to use some, not all of them, but some of them. If, if all you have to say at the end is, well, I heard Professor Connett, and he was very convincing, then someone says to you, well, what did he, te what did he tell you that convinced you? Oh, I don't remember that, but I do remember he was convincing. That's not good enough, okay? So hopefully you can remember these 12 arguments. I will be elaborating on each as we go through, but let's see at the end whether how many you've remembered, and there will be a quiz. So the first argument is fluoride is not a nutrient. To demonstrate that the substance is a nutrient, you have to starve an animal of this substance in its diet and demonstrate that some disease occurs. That's never been done for fluoride. There's no such thing as a fluoride deficient disease. A tooth decay is not caused by lack of fluoride, but by too much sugar. Uh, there's not one single biochemical process inside the body that needs fluoride to function properly. On the other hand, uh, many biochemical processes are harmed by fluoride. And in fact, the first opponents of fluoridation were biochemists, and some of them very prominent biochemists. Biochemists who won the Nobel Prize. Uh, for example, James Sumner at Cornell won the pro um, Nobel Prize for his work on enzyme chemistry and he warned, fluoride poisons enzymes. You don't want it anywhere near your body. Don't put it in the water. Now, for those who want to get right up to date with all the ways that fluoride is toxic in the body, the kind of things that it can uh, affect, even at low doses, uh, this article is a recent review article. That is only for people with a biochemical training. But it's useful for you to know that there is substance out there which documents all the nasty things that it can do. Now, is one part per million 
large or small. That's the level that we add fluoride, approximately, add fluoride to the water. One milligram per liter. Is that large or small? Well, the promoters say, it is teeny weeny weeny. It's very, very small, they say. And they say, this one part per million is one cent in a thousand dollars. It is in ten thousand dollars. One cent in ten thousand dollars. Oh, I got my arithmetic wrong. It's one inch in 16 miles. Well, a toxicologist would laugh at that because they would tell you whether one part per million is large or small depends upon the substance that you're talking about. If we were talking about dioxin, one part per million is a million times too much. We are concerned about parts per trillion if it was dioxin. If it was arsenic, one part per million is a hundred times the safe drinking water standard for arsenic. So it depends what the substance is before we are convinced that something is large or small. Now, the level which I think gives us an indication of the fact that one part per million is actually large is the level in mother's milk. Uh, the levels that we fluoridate at are actually about 200 times the level of fluoride in mother's milk. Uh, a mother that lives in a non-fluoridated community, on average, has about 0.004 parts per million. And that is 250 times less than one part per million. Or if you go to 0.7, it's 175 times less, but it's about 200 times less. So what does nature know that the American Dental Association does not know? Uh, it took millions of years to develop the mammal. We, all, we evolved from the sea. There was plenty of fluoride in the sea, 1.4 parts per million. And yet through all the twists and turns of evolution, with an adequate supply of fluoride to draw upon, nature decided that the baby needed very, very little. Our scientists, with a lack of humility, feel that they can give our babies 250 times more than nature. Argument number three. Uh, fluoridation is a very poor medical practice. Uh, once we put a medicine in the water, we cannot control the dose. We can control the concentration, milligrams per litre. That our engineers can control at the waterworks. What we can't control is the dose in milligrams per day, because that depends on how many litres you drink. If you drink one litre at one part per million, you're going to get one milligram. If you drink two litres, you're going to get two milligrams. Three litres, three milligrams. But it's worse than that. We can't control the dose because not only do people get fluoride from water, but today they get it from dental products, and they get it from air pollution, and they get it from pesticides, and they get it from fertilizers, and they get it from foods which have high natural levels, like tea, and mechanically deboned meat. Secondly, once you put it in the water, you can't control who gets it. It goes to everybody. It goes to young and old, sick and well, people with poor nutrition, people with poor kidney function that certainly shouldn't get fluoride, people with 
borderline iodine deficiency, they shouldn't get fluoride, but it goes to everybody once you put it in the water. Ask the pharmacist the next time you go in, is there any drug in this store that you can give to anybody at any dose? And he's going to laugh in your face. Of course, it's not possible to do that. And finally, and most importantly, it violates the individual's right to informed consent to medication. If you're in any doubt about the need for doctors to follow this, look up the American Medical Association's webpage. They make it very clear what a doctor can and cannot do. The doctors are supposed to tell you what the benefits of the drug are, what the side effects of the drug are, and in theory, you are meant to de decide for yourself whether you're going to take that drug. Now, I know in, th in practice, most of us do what the doctor tells us, uh, but in theory, at least, we should have that right to say no if we don't want to take that medicine for some reason. And if at that point the doctor tried to force it upon you, he or she would lose their license. Very important. So what we've got here then is the whole community is doing to everyone what an individual doctor can do to no one. Force you to take medication. Now they sometimes say, we only deliver the water to the tap. You determine whether you're going to drink it or not. Now, maybe if you're middle income, maybe if you're high income, you have the luxury of getting an alternative water source. But that's certainly not true of families of low income. They don't have the luxury of getting an alternative source of water or by expensive technology. The fourth argument is that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has never regulated fluoride for ingestion to fight tooth decay, either as a prescription drug or in water. According to the FDA, it is an unapproved drug. And as a result, they haven't required the same uh, stringent testing that goes into other drugs. Other drugs require randomized clinical trials to demonstrate that the drug is both safe and effective. That's never been done with fluoridation. In 68 years, there's never been a randomized trial to demonstrate effectiveness or safety. Next, because the FDA has not approved this drug, it's not collecting from patients or doctors any information about side effects. And as I'm sure you're well aware, that the FDA does that, and after a while, if there's too many complaints of side effects, then the drug is taken off the market, like Vioxx. But that only came about because the FDA was tracking the responses. No tracking for fluoride. The fifth argument, it's ineffective. Uh, the evidence that water fluoridation, and I'm here talking about swallowing fluoride, reduces tooth decay, is extremely weak. I shall be going into details later, but right now, if you go to chapters 6 through 8 in our book, we go through that lack of evidence. It was very weak at the beginning when it started, and it's weak today. So more upon that later tonight. You're listening to Doctor of Chemistry and Director of the Fluoride Action Network, Paul Conant. Today's show, Water Fluoridation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Six, any benefit, and this is the reason, by the way, 
the reason that the evidence of swallowing fluoride reduces tooth decay is weak is because even now, now the promoters of fluoridation have admitted that it works topically. The predominant action of fluoride is topical. This first came, was first stated by the Center of Disease Control in 1999. Um, and at that point, should have been a place where we stopped fluoridation. Once they admitted that the benefit of fluoride is topical, it no longer makes sense to swallow it and expose every tissue in the body to a toxic substance. Fluoridated toothpaste is universally available. The more difficult toothpaste to get in our society is non-fluoridated toothpaste. So it's readily available. Brush it on your teeth and spit it out. So this way you protect all the other tissues in the body from this toxic substance. And also, you're not forcing it on people that don't want it. So they could have solved the medical issues, they could have solved the ethical issue with one change in strategy. Instead of delivering fluoride to people with the water supply, you educate the people to use fluoridated toothpaste. If you want fluoride, I don't want fluoride at all, so I haven't used fluoridated toothpaste for 16 years. But if I had to make a choice as a government official, I would rather promote Rather, they promote fluoridated toothpaste than fluoride in the water. There, incidentally, is the exact quote from the CDC. Fluoride carries preventive properties initially were attributed to changes in enamel during tooth development. And that's why doctors gave tablets to pregnant women and drops to babies before their teeth had come out. The idea is that the fluoride would build up in the enamel and protect the teeth when they erupted into the mouth. However, laboratory and epidemiological research suggests that fluoride prevents dental caries predominantly after eruption of the tooth into the mouth and its actions are primarily topical. It works on the outside of the tooth, not from inside the body. Seven, the chemicals used in fluoridation are not pharmaceutical grade, not the same grade that we use in toothpaste exception. These chemicals are industrial waste products derived from the air pollution control systems of the phosphate fertilizer industry. They use a spray of water to capture two very toxic gases which damage the environment near phosphate plants for many years. This spray of water captures hydrogen fluoride and silicon tetrafluoride and makes a substance called hexafluorosilicic acid. With all chemicals, the formula is easier to remember than the name. So hexafluorosilicic acid is H2SI, small i for silicon, F6. Hexa meaning 6, hexafluorosilicic acid the correct name. Anyway, cut a long story short, they can't dump this stuff into the sea by international law. They can't dump it locally because it's too concentrated, but if someone buys it from them, it then becomes a product, and then we put it in our drinking water supply. And there's a famous statement from Re Rebecca Hanmer at the EPA, who's saying, this is a wonderful solution. This is a solution to an air pollution 
uh, air pollution problem and gives us a cheap chemical to use in fluoridation programs. Except she forgot to mention that these, this hexafluorosilicic acid contains all kinds of contaminants. Not only in Florida they mine this phosphate rock for fertilizer, they mine it for uranium. And so there's some uh, small quantities of radioactive isotopes in this. But the, the one that's simplest to remember is this arsenic in there. And arsenic is a known human carcinogen. So inevitably, the use of these chemicals which contain arsenic will increase cancer rates in the United States. This is regardless of whether fluoride itself causes cancer. Arsenic is a known human carcinogen. We can argue about how much the rates of cancer will increase, but we can't, they can't argue that they won't increase, because as far as the EPA is concerned, it will cause cancer right down to one molecule. Argument number eight, our children are being overexposed to fluoride. This is particularly relevant to Sonoma County, because you can benefit from this information, or your officials can benefit from this uh, information. Uh, according to the Center for Disease Control, a report in 2010, 41% of American children aged 12 to 15 have some form of dental fluorosis. This is a mottling, a discoloration of the enamel, little white patches, uh, varying in severity. And it is a well-known marker, visible marker, that that child has received too much fluoride during the development of its teeth. When they started fluoridation in 1945, they thought they would limit dental fluorosis to 10% of the population. And that was the trade-off. We would reduce tooth decay, they thought, and only get 10% of the kids would get the very, very mildest form of dental fluorosis. Look at, run the clock forward, we're four times worse than that. 41% of American kids, and not all in its very mild form. Later on, I should be showing you pictures of what dental fluorosis looks like and give you the percentages of what American children have. Nine, teeth are not the only tissue impacted by fluoride. In my view, it would be a biochemical miracle if the only tissue that was affected by fluoride's very active biological properties would be the growing tooth cells. But the thing is, we can see this effect, you see, so they can't deny it. They cannot deny dental fluorosis because you can see it with the visible eye. But they do deny impacts on the bone, they do deny impacts on the brain, and impacts on the thyroid system. Why? Because we can't see it and because we're not doing any studies to see if it's happening. If you don't look, you don't find. This is what Arvid Carlson, Arvid Carlson led the successful campaign against fluoridation in Sweden in the 70s. And one of the things he said at that time was, one wonders what an increase in exposure to fluoride such as occurs with bottle-fed infants may mean for the development of the brain and other tissues. A very, very prophetic statement, as we shall see. Um, I'll be looking at effects on the brain later. 
10. There is no adequate margin of safety to protect the whole population. And here, you have to guard against two simple, simplistic statements from proponents. They don't understand the difference between concentration and dose. So if, if there's an effect, say at three parts per million, they will say, ah, but that's four times the level that we're planning, 0.7. As if that was some kind of protection. Somebody drinking water at 0.7 parts per million could get a higher dose than someone drinking fluoride, fluoridated water at three parts per million. Again, it depends upon how much water people drink. So in terms of the dose, the two populations, one drinking water at 0.7 and one drinking water at three parts per million, would overlap. The doses would overlap. So to say it's higher concentration is to miss the point and indicate that very well qualified health officials do not understand the first lesson in toxicology, which is the difference between concentration and dose. Uh, the second thing is this notion of, of what is high when what we should be doing is to see if there's an adequate margin of safety. In fact, these are words that you never hear coming out of the mouths of a fluoridation proponent. You hear high and low, what you don't hear is margin of safety. And let me put it in a nutshell and I'll come back and elaborate on this more with an example later on. What we mean by margin of safety is this. Standard toxicology. If you're looking at a toxic substance, you, you find the lowest dose of your toxic substance that causes harm in a small study group. You usually only have a small study group. And then, having found that dose, to determine the safe dose for a large population containing millions of people, you divide by 10. It's called the intra-species safety factor. You divide by 10 to get the dose to protect the most vulnerable person in your population. Divide by 10. Some people would say you need to divide by more to protect for babies and young children, but at least 10. So you find your dose which causes harm, divide by 10, and that's what we would call the safe reference dose. Very important. I'll be coming back to that. I would state my whole political, my scientific reputation on there being no adequate margin of safety to protect against several endpoints. Not an adequate margin of safety to protect against hip fractures for lifelong exposure. Not enough margin of safety to protect against arthritic symptoms. Not enough margin of safety to protect against lowering thyroid function and not enough margin of safety to protect against the lowering of IQs in children, which I shall come back to. You're listening to Doctor of Chemistry and Director of the Fluoride Action Network, Paul Conant. Today's show, Water Fluoridation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. 
This is Guns and Butter. And let's also make that something else clear. Obviously, there's an argument about whether or not fluoride cause, fluoridation causes harm. And that's what a large amount of this presentation is about, is looking at the literature that indicates that there is likely to be harm from, from fluoridation. But there's no argument about something else, and that is there's no argument that fluoride damages health. Fluoride, the, the iron, the salt, whatever you call it, the compound, has damaged the lives of millions of people in India, China, parts of Africa, parts of Mexico, which have high natural levels of fluoride. And those countries, particularly China and India, are spending a fortune trying to get fluoride out of their water, whilst we are trying to put it in. So more of fluoride's impact on the brain to come. Fluoridation may actually be killing a few men each year. Um, some studies have found an association between exposure to fluoride at a particular time in a young male's life and a frequently fatal bone cancer called osteosarcoma. Now, you know, the evidence of reducing tooth decay would have to be pretty strong and the evidence for that pretty weak for any responsible official to say, we should go on. In other words, can you imagine any official saying there's a certain amount of tooth decay which we can save and it doesn't matter if a few young children die of osteosarcoma each year? I don't think that is reasonable. Twelve, most countries in the world do not fluoridate their water. In fact, more than half the people drinking artificially fluoridated water live in North America. About 400 million worldwide, to over 200 million in America. 97% of European countries do not fluoridate their water. There they are. These are the 97% of European countries that do not fluoridate their water. Some started, like the Netherlands, but stopped. Some had one town fluoridated, Finland, Sweden, Germany, and stopped. Eastern Germany was fluoridated until the two Germanys combined, and they stopped. Switzerland had a few cities fluoridated, they have stopped. Um, four of those countries fluoridate their salt. But here the, the customer, the patient, the individual has some choice in the matter. You can either buy fluoridated salt or non-fluoridated salt. It's up to you. But you're not forcing it on other people, unless you're a cook. Okay. But according to World Health Organization data, tooth decay in 12-year-olds, uh, it's coming down as fast in the fluoridated as the non-fluoridated countries. So here's the time scale. Here we have data from the 1960s through to the present. And this is tooth decay in 12-year-olds. And you'll notice it's coming down as fast as these top 12 fluoridated countries. Those in the, uh, I think it's green, those are non-fluoridated countries. United Kingdom has about 10% fluoridated, and the red box are the fluoridated ones. I don't think you can tell the difference between the fluoridated and the non-fluoridated countries, 
as far as the decline in tooth decay. In other words, tooth decay has been coming down in Western countries uh, throughout the industrialized world in the same period. And if you look at the, the results today, it's a wash. You can't tell the difference in tooth decay between some of these countries which are fluoridated and some of those countries which are non-fluoridated. Part two, evidence of harm, no adequate margin of safety from known health effects of fluoride. That's what we're going to look at now. Health concerns. Now the health concerns were beautifully summarized in this 500 page report from the National Research Council. The, this is the, the full title, Fluoride in Drinking Water, a Scientific Review of EPA's Standards. This report was requested by the US EPA's Water Division. Look at our safe, safety standards for water, are they adequate? This is the panel, this is the, the marvelous thing about this report. It was the first panel ever selected to look at fluoride or fluoridation which was balanced. They had three pro-fluoridation scientists, three anti-fluoridation scientists, and six uncommitted. Uh, they expected to take a year, but it, finally, it took them three and a half years, and their final report, 507 pages and 1,100 references. This is like the, the Bible of toxicology on fluoride today. Now, having said that, the fluoridation promoters have done their best to downplay or completely ignore this report by the National Research Council. So, for example, on the day that the report was released, the same day, the ADA declared that it was irrelevant to water fluoridation, erroneously claiming that the NRC panel concerned itself only with water containing fluoride at four parts per million. They didn't have time to read the reports. They certainly didn't have time to check up on any of the references. And they certainly didn't have time to do a risk assessment to determine a new safe water drinking standard, which is what the NRC recommended. It took the EPA five years even to start this risk assessment. But apparently the ADA was able to do it in one day and find out that it was perfectly okay. The fluoridation was perfectly okay. Uh, this is politics, not science, I think is pretty reasonable to conclude. It took Tweedledum, that's the CDC Oral Health Division, just six days to copy Tweedledee. And they declared on their website, the findings of the NRC report are consistent with CDC's assessment that water is safe and healthy at the levels used for water fluoridation. What a relief that is. What it isn't really, because they, it's clearly that their top scientists in these organizations can't read. Because if they'd read chapter two of the National Research Council report, it was an exposure analysis. And that exposure analysis concluded that certain subsets of the population were exceeding the EPA's safe reference dose of 0.06 milligrams per kilogram per day, drinking fluoridated water at one part per million. That's black and white. Not relevant to water fluoridation. Amazing. 
These subsets, incidentally, included high water drinkers and bottle-fed babies. Bottle-fed babies are exceeding the safe reference dose for fluoride. And don't forget, if you put fluoride in Sonoma County, low-income families will be forced to use fluoridated tap water to make up baby formula and will therefore be giving their babies above safe reference standards. Now, I want you to read carefully what Dr. John Duell, the chairman of this committee, he's also an, an author of one of the most used books on toxicology in the United States, maybe worldwide. Duell, John Duell. He said, what the committee found is that we've gone with the status quo regarding fluoride for many years, for too long really, and now we need to take a fresh look. In the scientific community, people tend to think that this is settled. I did. I did. I mean, when the U.S. Surgeon General comes out and says this is one of the top ten greatest achievements of the 20th century, that's a hard hurdle to get over. But when we looked at the studies that have been done, we found that many of these questions are unsettled and we have much less information than we should considering how long this fluoridation has been going on. That's an excellent article in Scientific American. I really urge you to get that back copy, January of 2008. Now that, juxtapose that with public health officials like your Dr. Chalfin, who will get on a public platform and say fluoridation is perfectly safe and, and is very effective. And we've been doing this for years and years and years, there's no problems. Contrast that with a professor of toxicology who's written a standard text on toxicology. We don't have all the questions. And that's one of the reasons cited by European countries. They cite two reasons for not fluoridating the water. One, we don't want to force fluoridation on people that don't want it. And secondly, we do not believe that all the health issues have been resolved. Now, the harmful effects of fluoride that were discussed in this NRC report was one, dental fluorosis, two, bone damage, three, lowered thyroid function, four, the accumulation in the human pineal gland, five, brain damage, Six, osteosarcoma, and some other things, but I'll just stop there. Now let me start with dental fluorosis. Um, I've referred to this already. Here's the chapter in the verse, November 2010, the CDC reported dental fluorosis rates in the country. And this is the data for 12 to 15-year-olds. 12 to 15-year-olds. And the green bar, is the current percentage of children with different categories. So children today, American children with very mild dental fluorosis, 28.5%. Children with mild, 8.6%. Children with moderate or severe, 3.6%. Um, and notice this sharp increase over the last uh, 10 years or so. Now I want you to have a look at those three categories. Very mild, mild and moderate or severe. There's very mild. Very mild dental fluorosis 
Uh, this is one A right end of the, the range, the spectrum. The very mildest of very mild uh, dental fluorosis is little white specks on the cusp of the teeth, usually on the corners. Look at the front teeth, and it's symmetrical. Okay, but at the other end of the range, it can cover up to 25% of the tooth surface. Although you get these white patches, and sometimes with age, they stain. They stain yellow, orange, brown, and eventually black. Now, as I said, there's 28.5% of our kids have that condition. And when they started fluoridation, they expected that number to be 10%, and only that very mild. Now, 8.6% of our kids have this condition. 8.6% of women children 12 to 15 have up to 50% of their tooth surface um, impacted in that way. And 3.6% of our kids, this is the last category, of either, either moderate or severe, in which 100% of the tooth enamel is impacted with discoloration, with indentations, and with severe dental fluorosis, with chipping. They become very brittle, the moderate or severe dental fluorosis. You have to ask yourself why we should do this to one in three kids in America, and presumably in Sonoma County in days to come, or years to come. You're listening to Doctor of Chemistry and Director of the Fluoride Action Network, Paul Conant. Today's show, Water Fluoridation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So let's go to the bones now. One of the first studies, one of the first trials of fluoridation in the United States was in Newburgh, Kingston, uh, New York. This incidentally was designed partly by the Manhattan Project. Uh, scientists in the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb, uh, you know, making of World War II, uh, were interested in the low level effects of fluoride. And the chairman of the committee that set up this trial was the chief toxicologist of the Manhattan Project. And the results of this study were fed on a daily basis to Rochester, New York. One of the things that they found out was the incidence of cortical bone defects were about twice as high in the fluoridated town compared to the non-fluoridated town, 13.5% versus 7.5%. The difference was statistically significant. Well, what is the cortical bone? The bone has two parts to it. The inside bone is called trabecular from traps, meaning support. Uh, the center of the bone is important for the spine, the pelvis, and so on. Weight-supporting bones, it's, that's the structure, to support weight. The outside layer of the bone, which is the, bone, the legs and the arms and so on, uh, is the cortical bone structure. That's a lamellar structure, and that is designed to resist fracture. So when they saw more defects in the cortical bone of the fluoridated kids, they should have wondered whether there was an increase in bone fractures amongst those children. But no studies were done on those children for bone fractures, or any other children in the United States since this experiment began. But they did do an experiment in Mexico and published in 2001 where what they did was a very useful methodology. They compared bone fractures 
in local clinics with the severity of dental fluorosis. And what they found is, is as the severity of dental fluorosis went up from no, very mild, mild, moderate, and severe, the bone fractures occurring in the local clinics went up in almost a linear fashion, not only for the children, but for adults as well. Of course, the proponents rushed in and criticized the methodology. But what they didn't do was to see if the same thing was happening in America, even though we had millions of children in each of these categories. We could have been looking at this a long, long time ago, but we didn't. Now, arthritis. The first symptoms of fluorized poisoning of the bones, we know this from India, we've known it for a long time, the first symptoms do not show up on x-rays, but that people complain of stiffness of joints, pains in the joints, and pains in the bones. And these symptoms are identical to arthritis. And according to the Center for Disease Control, we have 68 million people in the United States, one in three American adults, with some form of arthritis. And if you ask your doctor, Doc, you tell me I've got arthritis, what causes that? And what they usually say is, well, we don't really know, but we think it's got something to do with aging. Oh, well, could it possibly have something to do with how many years you've been absorbing fluoride into your bones? 50% of the fluoride that you take in each day is deposited in your bones. And if you have poor kidney function, it could be as high as 90%. So if you do that for lifelong, uh, are you going to increase your arthritis rates? Well, that would be a nice thing to study, but it's never been studied in the United States. No fluoridating country, neither Australia, New Zealand, Israel, Ireland, Canada, or the United States, Malaysia, or Singapore, have attempted to see if there's any relationship between the duration of exposure to fluoride and arthritis. Extraordinary, but true. Now, this is from the National Research Council. All members of the committee agreed that there is scientific evidence that under certain conditions, fluoride can weaken bone and increase the risk of fractures. The fracture that we are most concerned about is this bone here. It's pretty fragile. This is the iliac crest bone, which joins the, the, the thigh bone to the pelvis. That's what breaks if you're elderly and have a fall. And the sad thing is that for elderly people, if that happens, 50% of them never regain an independent existence because you have to immobilize the patient for several months and by that time their muscles have atrophied and if you're very old it's difficult to get them back. 25% are dead within a year of the operation of the hip replacement. Uh, several lines of information indicate the effect of fluoride exposure on thyroid function. One of those lines of evidence was that doctors in Argentina, France, and Germany uh, used fluoride to lower the thyroid function of people with overactive thyroid. And the doses that they used, again, are easily exceeded in a fluoridated community. So now I want to go to the real interest for me. I've been interested in this in 17 years, ever since I got involved, and that's fluoride in the brain. 
Now, there have been over a hundred animal experiments which shows that fluoride can enter the brain, concentrate in the brain, locate in different regions of the brain, and damage the brain, and cause behavioral changes, cause biochemical changes, an enormous literature there now, and some at low doses. Let me show you one animal experiment at a remarkably low dose. Varna and co-workers gave rats one part per million fluoride in their water for one year. One group got aluminium fluoride, correct pronunciation, and the other got sodium fluoride. Both groups had kidney damage brain damage, visible under the microscope. And a greater uptake of aluminium into the brain and beta amyloid deposits, characteristic, some people think, of Alzheimer's disease. Pretty serious stuff. This is a one part per million. Uh, Jennifer Luke in England did her PhD thesis on the pineal gland uh, in, with respect to fluoride. The pineal gland is located between the two hemispheres of the brain it's not protected by the blood-brain barrier, so fluoride can get in. It has the second highest perfusion rate of blood per unit volume of any tissue in the body except the kidney. So lots of fluoride will get in. And thirdly, it's a calcifying tissue, like the teeth and the bones. It lays down little crystals of calcium hydroxyapatite. She had 11 corpses analyzed and found that the average level of fluoride on the, in the pineal gland on these crystals was 9,000 parts per million, went up to 21,000 parts per million. That's higher than the bone levels in somebody with crippling skeletal fluorosis. So that was the first part of her thesis, that it concentrated in the human pineal gland. Um, and second experiment that she did was to look at the effect on animals. Now, the pineal gland produces a hormone called melatonin. It only makes the melatonin at night. It's sometimes called the hormone of darkness. The pineal gland is sometimes referred to as the third eye because it's sensitive to light. Anyway, this is thought to be like a biological clock, uh, controlling the onset of puberty, sleep patterns, jet lag, and aging. And there's a lot of research being done on it with the possibility of its relationship with cancer. Anyway, as far as puberty is concerned, it, um, it turns out that the highest levels are in young children, and as the level of melatonin falls at a certain point, that's the switch for the onset of puberty, for the sex hormones to be produced. And what she found is that the animals that were, had the high fluoride had lower melatonin production and were reaching puberty earlier than the low fluoride animals. And I should also remind you, if you remember, I referred to the Kingston, uh, Newburgh Kingston study in the, the bone, cortical bone defects. That same study found that the young girls in the fluoridated town were menstruating on average five months earlier than the young girls in the non-fluoridated community. They didn't think it was uh, important at the time. Now what I find striking about this finding, we have made this her PhD thesis and referenced her uh, published studies, made these available to health agencies. Not one single health agency in a fluoridated country has made any effort to reproduce this study. None. 
IQ studies. As of January of this year, there have now been 36 published studies from China, Iran, India, and Mexico, indicating that fairly modest fluorine exposure is associated with lowered IQ in children. The, the IQ is distributed normally, the famous bell-shaped curve, okay? The average person, most people are going to average around an IQ of 100. But it's the two tails that we're interested in, particularly interested. The very bright people have an IQ of about over 130. This is where your geniuses are. The, the slower people have an IQ less than 70. This is where you're mentally handicapped are. Now, if you shift the IQ curve over by five IQ points, which we believe we did when we had lead in gasoline, that's what we were doing to the IQ of our population of children, you wouldn't notice, a teacher would not notice the difference in IQ between a child of 100 and one of 95. A parent wouldn't notice the difference between two siblings, one 100 and 95. You don't notice that. But look what it does to the two tails. It halves the number of geniuses in your society and it doubles the number of mentally handicapped. This has huge social and economic ramifications for a country like the United States. And it's utterly irresponsible for our health agencies, given the fact that we are deliberately exposing our kids to this neurotoxin, a problem that could be solved as easily as turning off a tap or doing nothing. Been making no attempt to reproduce these studies, issuing no warnings, and pretending to the public that the most serious endpoint of fluoride is severe dental fluorosis, as if our teeth were more important than our brains. <laughs> Consider the weight of evidence. We have over a hundred animal studies that shows that fluoride can damage the brain. We have over ten animal studies that shows that fluoride can change behavior. We have four studies that shows that fluoride can damage the fetal brain before the baby is born. We have 36 studies which shows a lowering of IQ, and we have another seven human studies showing changes in neurobehavior. Take any one of those and it's cause for concern. Take the whole lot, and it's very, very serious indeed. And this is being peddled by civil servants, only rivaled by my conversation today with your chief uh, health officer. Uh, again. Now, she's got a job to do, she's got a job to do. Her job is to get fluoridation into Sonoma County. She's a dangerous woman. She's very pleasant, but she's dangerous. If she doesn't do this, she will lose her job. She's got her marching orders. It's democracy that has to trump bureaucracy here. This is the review of the literature worldwide. The magnitude of fluoridation effect is not large in absolute terms, is often not statistically significant, and may not be of clinical significance. Um, this was important research done in Iowa. This is a government-funded study, the Iowa study. They found no relation between tooth decay and the amount of fluoride ingested. This is what they say. These findings suggest that achieving a caries-free status 
may have relatively little to do with fluoride intake. All right? And what basis then do you put fluoride in the water? There is no need to swallow it. There is no need to force it on people that don't want it. And I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Paul Connett. Today's show has been Water Fluoridation. Dr. Paul Connett is director of the Fluoride Action Network. He has a Ph.D. in chemistry from Dartmouth College and was professor of environmental chemistry and toxicology at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York, before retiring in 2006. He is co-author of The Case Against Fluoride, how hazardous waste ended up in our drinking water, and the bad science and powerful politics that keep it there. Visit the Fluoride Action Network website at www.fluoridealert.org. That's fluoridealert.org. For information on the attempts being made to fluoridate the drinking water of Sonoma County, visit www.toxicdrinkingwater.org. That's toxicdrinkingwater.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com or faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org.